0: Beloved, go ahead and open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 13 this morning. And I want to tell you that from the beginning, this text that we're looking at this morning is not an easy one, okay? These first seven verses of Romans chapter 13, in them Paul makes some very broad statements about our relationship as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to earthly governing authorities, okay? And Sometimes people will say, well, you know, does this text even belong here? And there have been some that have argued and said that this was a later edition and all this other stuff. I don't believe any of that, obviously. Um, it's, it, it, it follows perfectly if you consider what we've been reading, you know, for the last couple months in Romans chapter 12, right? We, we We read in Romans chapter 12 that in light of the gospel and in light of the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ to save us, to make us his own, There are certain ways in which we are to relate to first God, and then to relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ, then to relate to those in the world that are not believers, and now, in Romans 13, how we are to relate to the governing authorities. Okay? That's what this text is about. How do we relate to governing authorities? And I'm gonna tell you what, it's caused no small, uh, you know, amount of discussion and debate among faithful and sincere Christians for centuries, but then really, essentially, and and it's sort of been revived in the last few years, right? Since the whole COVID thing. And so I can tell you that my own understanding of this text has grown significantly in the 14 plus years since I first preached this at West Salem Baptist Church, okay? And so the question of the Christian's relationship to the state And how we are to respond to government authority, beloved, is extremely relevant today. It's extremely relevant today, and I suspect that it will become even more so as we draw closer and closer, as events bring us closer and closer to the rise of a tyrannical one-world government described for us in Revelation chapter 13. So these words that we're looking at this morning are not, it's not a throwaway morning. Oh, it's just about the government. I don't really need to pay attention to this. This has no real bearing. Oh, yes, it does. It does. And so let us stand together. And we're going to read these first seven verses of Romans chapter 13. And then we'll call upon the Lord to, to, to you know, bless the exposition of this word to our hearts. Let's look at it. This is the word of the living God. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we look at this text this morning, I pray that you would be gracious and meet with us and, uh, Father, open up your holy word to us. We need you, Spirit of the living God, to come and to be our teacher, to come and to unfold this truth that you have inspired to our understanding and for our obedience. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would empty me of any reliance upon myself, any reliance upon my own wisdom. And he reliance upon, you know, anything in me at all. But Lord God, that you would cause me to be filled with your Holy Spirit, that you would make of me, Father, uh, uh, an honorable vessel fit for your use this morning, that you would, you would master my lips, you would master my tongue, I would speak only that which is pleasing in your sight. And Father, I pray for this congregation, for those here who are in Christ and those who are not yet in Christ. I pray that by your Spirit you would Unblind um their eyes and unstop their ears. I pray specifically For the brothers and sisters in christ that spirit of god you might teach them and so that on both ends There would be the work of you, you know in our lives in me the preaching in them the receiving and I pray lord god that You will glorify your ultimate authority Over all things before our eyes this morning You are great there is no one who compares to you. And the more that we know of you, the more, Lord God, we are in awe of you. We are in awe of you because of your grandeur and your glory and your majesty, because you are holy other. And we are in awe of you because you sent your Son, the second member of the Trinity, to take to himself human flesh and to live among us and to live the life of perfect obedience and faithfulness to You, which we would not and we could not live. If we were given a million chances. And then, Lord God, You placed upon the head of Christ our sins so that He might pay in full the wrath our sins deserve. He rose again on the third day so that by faith we might have salvation through, it, it, through trust in His redeeming work. You, have, you are awesome. You're so worthy to be praised. And then you didn't leave it at that, but you sent your spirit to come and to pursue people dead in soul and make us alive and draw us to Christ and give us faith to believe. Lord, everything we have that is good is owed to you. Therefore, you're worthy of praise. Consecrate this time. Make this a holy time in your eyes. Lord God, let this this time of preaching be done to the praise of your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, beloved, I just want to say a few things at the outset. And the first thing I want to say to you is this. You know, as we're looking at this text, if you look through history, if you read theology like I do, you'll find out that there are good and faithful Christians that can and do disagree, not so much on the exegesis of this text, although there are some, you know, variations, but more regarding the application of this text. More regarding the what does this mean for me, what does this mean for us of this text. On one extreme, there are those that, for instance... Um, just simply ignore the teaching of this text. And they claim that, you know, because they've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and because they now owe ultimate authority to the Lord Jesus Christ, that all other intervening authorities, all governing authorities, you know, on this earth, that they they have no legitimacy anymore. That, that they're to be disregarded altogether because I just follow Christ. Okay, they're what we would call Christian anarchists. Of which there have been no small number throughout history. Many of the early Anabaptists were like this. They rejected local governing authorities because they said, well, we just follow Jesus. There's also a group, you know, on that side of the spectrum that just decide they're going to opt out of society, right? The whole Christian commune approach or, or you know, the, the monastic movement, you know, that was so popular, and the idea is, we're just gonna—we just—we don't have anything to do with the world anymore. We have nothing to do with the world's governing structures any longer because, you know, we're in Jesus, and and the kingdom that we're a part of is not of this world. And so, you know, neither are we. We're not going to even act like we have to live here, right? That's the idea. But then, on the other hand, on the other extreme, there are those who have taken Romans chapter thirteen, and they have leveraged it as a text to advocate for the complete and the unquestioned submission of everyone to the state in all things. That we are to obey the government all the time, no questions asked, because the government is the supreme ruler in this earth appointed by god it would probably come as no great surprise to you to know that this was the very tactic that was used to such detriment in nazi germany by the reich's church not by the confessing church not by those who are actually faithful to jesus but to the reich's church the church that was faithful to hitler's third reich they took this text and they said well You can't oppose what Hitler is doing because he is a sovereignly appointed ruler, duly elected, and therefore your obligation as a Christian is to obey everything that he says without critical examination. Now those are the two extremes, which are obviously in error, and in between there are a variety of, of of different interpretations and applications, but the question that I most often hear, whenever I speak regarding Romans chapter thirteen, usually boil down to these three questions: Can a can a Christian criticize the government for overreach? and for objectionable laws and not be in sin? Can a Christian oppose the government through speech and not be in sin? And then second, when is disobedience to the government justifiable or a duty? And then the third thing I often hear is this. Is revolution against a corrupt government ever legitimate? And could a Christian participate in something like that if the circumstances... We're correct. You know what's shocking to me? I have never had this question asked. Not once. I have never had anybody ask me, what's required of me to be a good and godly citizen? Not one time. No one has ever asked me, what do I need to do to be a good and a godly citizen? Why do you suppose that is? Why do you suppose that is? Yeah, we already think we are. Or... We have that sinful bent inside of us to be naturally opposed to any kind of authority, period. Don't we? So what we want to know is, what are the loopholes? What are loopholes on this? All right? Now listen, don't get me wrong. Those are important questions, and we're going to deal with them at least in a little bit at the end. But because that last question, what's required of me to be a good and a godly citizen, is never asked. I want to address it first. And I want to do so by reminding us of a very important truth, okay? And here's what we need to understand. Very important truth that is the foundation for all of this. Beloved, we got to realize that we are citizens of two kingdoms. I'm going to say that again. We are citizens of two kingdoms. Right now, in your body of flesh on this earth. Now, when you die and you go to be with Jesus, praise God, that's no longer. But right now... You are a citizen of two kingdoms, and that's vitally important for us to understand. Let me explain what I mean, okay? Paul tells the Philippians, and over in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 20, he says these words. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Right? Right? Here's what Paul's saying. Here's the gist. As those who've been redeemed and justified by by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as those who have been delivered from our former slavery to sin and from our former slavery to this present evil age, right, by the blood of Jesus, we are now citizens of heaven. We are citizens of the kingdom of our Lord, okay? And so for that reason, for that reason, our greatest and our supreme and our all-encompassing compa- all enc- allegiance is to God and to His Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? On that there can be no compromise. That's fundamental, right? However, you knew that was coming, the however or the but. However, our submission and our dedication to God, as well as our citizenship in His kingdom, listen to me, does not negate our citizenship in whatever nation in which we live. It does not negate our responsibility to the secular authorities that God has established over us. We can't just opt out of society. That's not an option for us. Not to be faithful Christians, Okay. And although we are sojourners and exiles in this world, we are commanded by God to be upright and honorable citizens as we sojourn in this earth, right? That's why Peter tells us something very similar to what Paul says here in Romans 13. He says to us these words, starting in First Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the first thing Peter is saying is, look, man, if you confess to be a Christian, live like one. Don't be saying you're a follower of Christ. Don't be saying you're a believer in Christ. If your life doesn't look like it, just keep your mouth shut. Instead, pursue obedience to Jesus. So that if somebody has something to say against you, it's going to have to be falsehood, right? But then he goes on to say this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, for the governors as sent by him notice this to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good so we got this responsibility to live in a god honoring and an upright manner in this world right so far as it depends on us we are to live peaceably with all in submission to proper government authority that's the norm that's expected okay We're to seek to be good and upright citizens for the Lord's sake. Good and upright citizens for the testimony of Christ. So then what is the relationship of the state to the Christian? And what is the relationship of the Christian to the state and the state to God? Those are the things that we're going to look at this morning from this, you know, this classic text, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. And to understand this text, here's what we need to do. We need to do some spade work like Martin Lloyd-Jones used to love to say. We've got to do some spade work. We've got to do some digging here, okay? We've got to dig into this text to see what it's truly saying and not what we may have heard and not what we might assume and not what we might want it to say. You with me? We need to see what does it actually say, not what have I heard, not what do I assume, not what would I like it to say, right? That's the way we have to approach all of Scripture, isn't it? Isn't it? So what does it say? So here's how I want us to approach this text. I want to exegete it first, okay? We're just going to go through it verse by verse and exegete it. What does it say? And then and then we're going to try to get, to, as we're doing it, to get to the heart of Paul's spirit-inspired train of thought. And then at the end, we'll offer quest, answers to some of the serious questions that we mentioned at the beginning, okay? Questions that come from this exegesis. Are you with me? All right, so let's get started. Paul starts in verses 1 and 2. Let's look at it again by saying this. He says, let every person... Be subject to the governing authorities. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now, I want you to notice with me something very important here. Okay? Paul is making a general statement describing governing authorities in this world and where they come from. He's making a general statement here, describing God's power and authority in the institution of civil governments or governing authorities, you know, whatever, okay? And and every person, this is especially applicable to us as Christians, but he's saying every person, everybody in the world is to be subject to the governing authorities because they've been established by God. They didn't just happen on their own. Government is not man's idea. It's God's idea. Governing authorities is God's idea, right? And so in his divine wisdom, he's established these lesser authorities in the world that exist under his supreme authority, and they've been instituted by him. They are ordered, they are arranged by God, but he remains the ultimate authority, okay? So God is supreme, everything else is derivative. you with me so far? Now, I want you to notice that the word that Paul uses here, For governing authorities is a general term it's a general term that can apply to parents it can apply to to church leaders it can apply to the workplace and it can apply to civil authorities okay it's not a unique word just for government it's a general word that can apply to every governing authority that god has put into place in this world okay and what we're to understand here is that god has established that's their authorities for a reason, right? It's for the sake of the common good ever since the fall, right? To restrain sin, to establish order and, and good conduct, to provide social stability, etc., okay? God has established governing authority so we don't run amok. Now, primarily in this text, he's got government authority in mind, as we'll see. He's going to talk about rulers here in a moment. But at least in these first two verses... Paul is speaking in general terms about the institution of governing authorities in our world. Okay? And I want you to want you to notice something else too, okay, so we can we can put some arguments to death. I want you to notice that Paul here is not advocating, or later on in this text, Paul does not advocate for any one particular kind of government as being better than the other. Okay? He's not advocating here for monarchy or oligarchy or emperorship or democracy or, in our case, constitutional republic. That's not what he's doing. And by the way, some of y'all are looking at me funny. It's because you've been miseducated. The United States is not a democracy. When you hear that on, on, on TV all the time from all the talking heads, this is a threat to our democracy. This is a threat to our democracy. This is a threat to our democracy. Well, okay, but we're not a democracy. We're a constitutional republic. We are We are a representative democracy. Read our founding documents. That's just an aside note. That's not important for this sermon. Well, maybe a little. Maybe a little. He's making a general statement here about our, about our relationship to governing authorities, okay? And he says here that everybody is supposed to be subject to them, okay? So especially as Christians, we are to be subject to the governing authorities. Well, what does that word subject mean? And this is where people get off. This is where people get off track a little bit, okay? And I want to help you with this. The word that Paul uses here for, for subject is the word hypotasso, bless you, which means to arrange yourself in proper order underneath. Hypotasso, it means to arrange yourself in a proper order underneath or to cooperate willingly or to assume a proper position of relationship to a certain authority. In other words, you're not the leader, they are. You with me? It's the same word, for instance, that Paul uses to talk about mutual submission in the body of Christ. Or to talk about the submission of a wife to her husband. Or, or the submission of a bondservant to a master. It speaks of a proper relationship, but, and I want to emphasize this, this word, hypotasso, does not mean subjugation or unquestioned obedience. That's not what it means. It does not mean subjugation or unquestioned obedience if paul had wanted to use a word that meant specifically obedience he would have used the word hypokoeo but he doesn't he uses hypotasso okay and it doesn't mean subjugation or unquestioned obedience why do i say that here's why i say that because we know that a wife is not to submit to her husband for instance in anything that would violate the word of god right right we know That a church should not submit to leaders who are leading them into error or sin. Correct? The word subject or subject does not imply unquestioned, uncritical, unthinking obedience to the governing authorities in all things. But it does mean to align yourself appropriately under their authority. And as we'll see later on, As long as what they command of you is upright and honorable and good or does not cause you to sin, does not cause you to sin, you're to obey. So Christians have no right to just opt out of society and opt out of government and opt out of, you know, submission to the authorities that God establishes. Because if you do that, Paul says you resist and reject God's appointed structure of things. You resist and reject what God has appointed for your good and you will, you will, you know, you will bring judgment to yourself at the hands of either the authorities or of God himself. And so we're to be under the authority, under the order of human government because God has established it. However, we're to always remember our ultimate allegiance is to God who established it, right? Not to man. He's the ultimate authority above everything else. King Jesus is ultimate authority in heaven and earth and all authorities exist and are established by him right you with me one last thing before we move on this is important to understand this is especially important to understand when we start talking about you know well you're just to unquestioningly obey every single authority every governing authority that's appointed over you in the providence of god right And according to his will, kings reign and various governments come to power and they exercise authority, right? They're raised up and they're brought down by God, right? Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, right? God is the one who who does all of that. Every ruler is indeed established by the providential will of God. But I want you to hear me. Not every ruler rules under divine favor or divine blessing. Or divine sanction. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. Not all rulers or governments. Receive the same approval of the Lord. You with me? In the ways of God's providence. Look there are times. When an evil ruler. Or an evil government. Is allowed to come to power. According to his providential will. But no despot. And no tyrant. And no dictator. Can claim divine approval. For evil doing, or for injustice, or for oppression, or for sin. They can't say, well, I'm doing this, God appointed me, and God approves. They can't say that. Because the ways of God are always righteousness and justice. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Okay, let me just give you an example of what I mean. When the nation of Israel, for instance, split, under Jeroboam, right? When the, when the, when the, when the kingdom split, And decided to, after the death of Solomon, and the ten northern tribes set up an independent government under Jeroboam. God said of that government through Hosea, Hosea chapter 8 and verse 4, They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. Now listen, God is not saying here, I had no idea what they were doing when they set up Jeroboam as king. That's not what he's saying. Neither is God saying, like, I had no clue about any of this. That's not what he's getting at. The heart of it is he didn't approve. In God's mysterious providence, he permitted that government to be established in northern Israel, but it didn't meet with his blessing. It didn't meet with his favor. It didn't meet with his approval. And you know how I know that? The history of the northern tribes bears it out. God appoints all, but he does not approve all. God appoints all, but he does not approve all. You with me? So Paul's speaking here in general terms. Governing authorities have been established by God. Christians rely themselves under government authority. And then he moves from a description of God's authority in the institution of civil government to, to God's prescription, to God's expectation, to God's mandate concerning the function of human government. So he says, in general terms, Paul says, look, God has established all the governing authorities. We're supposed to be subject to them. Oh, by the way, part two. Here's how governing authorities are to act on this earth. Here's what they're to be and do. And we see that in verses three and four. Look at it. He says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct. But to bad. They're not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So Paul doesn't beat around the bush here. This isn't hard to understand. He's very crystal clear about the responsibility of civil government, isn't he? Isn't he? And he says that God's divine mandate is that governing authorities are to affirm and they're to reward and they're to encourage good and upright behavior and they're to be a terror to bad or evil conduct. Now that's how the government's supposed to function. The government is to function in such a way in that it enforces what is good in the eyes of God, encourages what is good in the eyes of God. And puts down what is evil in the eyes of God. And they're responsible before God to do so. The the, the human government, human government is to establish, enforce, encourage, and give approval to good conduct. And they're to take action against evil, right? They're to be an agent of justice, they're to, you know, to, to serve the good in society. In fact, he says, if somebody does good, Paul's point is, if you do good, you should not be afraid of the governing authorities. Government's to be God's servant. It's not independent of God. It's not autonomous. It doesn't just get to make whatever rules it likes and God approves of it. There ought to function, government ought to function according to the moral law that has been written on every human heart. You with me? Like what Paul talks about in the beginning of Romans, Romans chapter 2. I'm not saying that every government is to sit down and crack open the Bible and do exactly what God says. I'm not calling for theocracy everywhere in the world. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul is advocating here. But Paul is saying, look, government... The people in government, rulers, ought to rule according to what they know to be right and wrong because God has written that on their conscience from the very beginning. Again, it's not perfect. It's been marred by sin. But inherently, in our souls, look, we all know we can discern, at least in a broad, you know, general terms, what's good and what's wrong. It's like when a kid steals something, they're like, well, I didn't know. You're a liar. Yes, you did. Because if somebody stole that from you, you'd be the first one calling for their arrest and execution. This whole idea, like, we don't know the difference between good and evil, right and wrong. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. The problem with those who are not in Christ is that they're slaves to do evil. It's not that they don't know it's wrong. People use that sometimes, like with the abortion thing. Like, let me tell you something. Don't tell me a doctor who has to go into the POC products of conception room after he's done a number of, of abortions and then piece the little bodies back together. Don't you stand there and tell me he doesn't know what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He doesn't care what he's doing. It's a lie. That's just to make a point. Government ought to know how to, how to run itself. It knows what's right and wrong. And it ought to serve, it must serve God and serve His people, serve the people, not just His people, the people. By promoting peace and order in society. For instance, over in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says these words, gives this command. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions. For what purpose? For this purpose. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Good, godly, and dignified in every way. That means, you know what? Part of the role of civil government... Is to establish laws that are just and equitable and that protect its citizens from evil. To engage in proper enforcement of those laws to maintain peace and order. To establish, you know, a, an adequate national defense. To establish real borders and to, you know, and to establish appropriate regulations so that its citizens can lead peaceful and quiet lives. In fact, Paul goes on to tell us here that civil government bears the sword. That is, civil government bears the right of judgment even up to capital punishment as the avenger of God to carry out judgment upon evildoers, okay? And they are to punish evildoers, wrongdoers, for the sake of safety and order in society. That's their job. In fact, notice here twice that rulers are called the servants of God. You see that? Twice here, they're called the servants of God. And one thing we know about a servant is that the servant is accountable to who? His master. And as God's servants, the governing authorities and rulers, they're responsible and they're accountable before God. They're accountable for what they do. They're accountable for how they rule. Because they're God's servants whether they acknowledge it or not. They're responsible to rule according to the moral law that's written upon the human conscience. They're to rule with accountability to God in mind. Governing authorities are not autonomous. They don't just get to do what they want to do. They're not gods on the earth. They're accountable to God. And every ruler everywhere is gonna give an account for their stewardship of the authority that God has entrusted to them. I want you to think about that. We're often familiar with the idea that pastors are gonna give a greater account before God for how they preached and how they led the church, right? We're often given an understanding that, you know, fathers are gonna, they're gonna bear an accountability before God for how they lead their families, right? Rulers. No matter at what level are going to have to give an account of themselves before the living God. That means all monarchs and all dictators and all presidents. It means governors and senators and congressmen. It means mayors and city and county commissioners and ombudsmen and all that other stuff. They're going to give an account and God's going to judge them for obedience or disobedience to his divine design. And so for that reason, Paul says in verse 5, look at it. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. He says, look, God established these authorities. These authorities are to rule in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And so therefore, for the sake of your conscience, not just because of, you know, the, the, the concern about God's wrath on the wrongdoer, right? God's wrath is imposed by the state an avenger, remember, who carries out God's wrath on the wrong door. Not because of that, not out of fear, but out of a conscience that says, I want to be obedient to God. That's why you as Christians are to be obedient to the governing authorities. That's the idea. Now, let's just be honest, okay? And let's be realistic here. Let me state the obvious. No uh, human government is perfect, right? Right? And so your whole thing can't be, well, you know, they really messed up this whole, you know... uh, expansion of i-81 project like it's been a huge nightmare and they've done that all wrong so from here on out i'm not going to obey any of the speed limit signs because they've demonstrated their incompetence here therefore i'm not gonna you know i'm, I'm just gonna drive however i want i'm not even gonna follow street signs anymore no 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 now i'm using that as a humorous example but what i'm getting at is this just because there are some local governments that do stupid things doesn't give you the freedom to just opt out because you think that's stupid. That's, that's not how it works. No government is perfect. Some are better than others. But the point is this, is that in every way that we can, in every way possible, in a good and a godly conscience, I'm gonna say that again, in every way we can, in every way that's possible, in a good and a godly conscience, we are to submit to, to line up under the leadership of the state and obey the Lord. When we're being obedient, we're not just obeying, obeying the government, we're obeying Christ himself. Are you with me? We always ought to seek to be good and peaceable citizens. In fact, we ought to be the best citizens, all things counted equally, in every nation. And that leads to what Paul says in verses 6 and 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what's owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. All right, let's just be honest. Nobody likes, who likes taxes? Nobody, right? We hate them. Nobody likes taxes at all, right? Everybody thinks they're too high, yours truly included. But taxes are necessary. They're necessary for the operation of human government and for the carrying out of the function and responsibilities of the government. And so paying them, you're not going to like this, paying them is a matter of obedience to God. That means when you're going through your deductions, if you could lie and add just one dime, just one dime, to those costs that I have added up now 300 times to try to make them more than they were. And that would slide me into a lower tax bracket and save me a lot of dough. You don't do it. And you don't rationalize it by, well, if I had that money, I'd tithe on it to the Lord. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Just shut up. You'd be like, well, I just, I got a, I got a windfall from the government. What do you know? Right? In fact, as it regards the government, Paul's very clear. We're to pay the taxes we owe. That's income tax. We're to pay the revenues we owe. And well, what are those? That'd be stuff like property tax and sales tax and hotel tax. And sometimes we're like, we're the most taxed people ever in history. No, go back and look at Rome. They're actually taxed just about as bad as us. we might be the worst in, like, the country, but, nah, maybe that's California still. I'll just leave that there. But here's the deal. We're to give. We're to pay what we're to pay. And he says... We're to give respect to whom respect is owed and give honor to whom honor is owed. And I can't go into all this, but theologians have debated and spilled a whole ton of ink on the meaning of those two phrases, exactly what that means, respect to whom respect is owed and, and honor to whom honor is owed. And I'm not going to go through all of the various ideas behind it. I'm just going to tell you where I land on this, okay? Here's where I land on this. I take Paul to be saying here that all civil authorities are to be given respect because of their position or because of their office. We're to respect all governing authorities because they occupy an office that demands respect, right? But honor is to be given or reserved, is to be given to those to whom it's owed. And that's owed to those who demonstrate honor and personal integrity and uprightness and morality in the way in which they rule. We have various ideas about who the greatest president in history was, right? All of us do. None of them was perfect. Some of them were less perfect than others. But there are certain guys we honor because of what they did. That's the idea here. So so here's the exegesis of this text. The Lord God is the ultimate authority in heaven and on earth. He's established governing authorities to restrain sin and to establish order and, and stability in, in a fallen world. Christians are to align themselves under the governing authorities that God has established or else they'll incur to themselves judgment, right? Governments have a divine mandate to encourage and affirm good conduct and to appropriately punish evil. They're responsible to God and they will give an account for the type of society that they establish and how they handle the authority with which they've been entrusted. Human government is imperfect. Some's better than others. But we are to submit to civil authority as much as we can in a good conscience before God. Paying our taxes, respecting the offices of civil authority, and giving honor to good and upright rulers. That's the general teaching of Paul here, right? You with me so far? Okay, so what do we do with that? What do we do with that? What about those big questions that we asked about earlier? What about the big questions? They're legitimate. We need to answer them. What about them is it ever right are we ever right to speak out against the government is it ever right for us to disobey civil authorities is it ever is there ever come a time when it's right for a people to rebel i want to look at these one by one as we close this out i just want to look at these one by one i say close these out we probably got half the sermon to go but maybe a little less I want to I want us to consider these one by one And I just want to say to you i've got to deal with them in general terms Like I can't deal with every single possible circumstance or situation. That's impossible for me to do We don't have the time to do that Okay, I can't deal with every possible case that any of us might possibly face but in the context what I can do is give you general guidelines And as I said before, while there are many theologians who would agree with what I say, there are some who would not. And I'm not going to denigrate them for that. So, let's take them one by one. Is it ever right for us to speak out against the government? Are we right to do that? As Christians, as those who are under governing authorities, is it ever right for us to speak out against government Overreach or government wrong. And beloved, the answer to that is yes. I know there are those people in society, there are even some in the church that say any time that you would speak to the government, you're engaging in politics. Wow, wow, wow. Well, why some more? As citizens of this country, to speak to the moral condition of our nation or the moral condition of its leadership is not politics. It's faithful Christianity. What do you mean by that, brother? Here's what I mean. When the civil authority ignores the law of God, or when it undermines the law of God, or when the fundamental structures of a just society are dismantled by our government. Police. We must stand with Christ and speak the truth. We must stand with Christ and speak to righteousness now listen, here's the deal. Under our Constitution, the governing authority of our country, by the way, let me just say that. You know, when people want to know what's the governing authority of the United States, is it the President, is it the Congress? It's the Constitution of the United States. It's a written document to which, to which our elected officials take an oath that they will uphold and defend it. But that being said, according to our Constitution, we are given the right of free speech. We're given the right to assemble. We are given the right to petition. Okay? We're given the right of free speech, the right to assemble and the right to position uh, to petition. And we may fully assume our rights and remain in proper submission to our governing authorities. So we've got the proper we've the the right to publicly address injustice and corruption and we should do it. It's right to confront the evil behavior of our rulers. Right. Just as John, John, ba- John, Baptist, John, the Baptist, just as John the Baptist. For instance, confronted Herod's adultery. It's right to adjust, un, address unjust laws and the inequitable application of justice in our society. The prophets of the Old Testament did that frequently. It's right to address the issue of just war and foreign policy. Again, the prophets of the Old Testament did that frequently. Financing just wars, for instance, or enabling lazy people and making them completely dependent upon the government, or financing Planned Parenthood so people can kill their babies in the womb, or enriching enriching a bloated government is not the purpose of taxes. It's an affront to the righteousness of God, and we're right to say so. It's right to insist upon the proper restraint of governmental overreach considering It's specific mandate from God in Romans chapter 13 verses, you know, three and four. The government has no right to dictate every action of its citizenry. The government has no right to declare what are acceptable thoughts or convictions that you may hold. It has no right to bind your conscience. It has no right to subvert religious liberty. It's got no right to oppose Christian education or infuse public education with indoctrination and propaganda. It doesn't have the right to impose itself into the family and to subvert parental authority. It's got no right, for instance, to remove a child from his or her parents' home because they will not allow them to mutilate their bodies and take hormones that will destroy them, the very bill that is they're attempting to get passed in California. And whatever happens in Hollyweird never stays there. It's got no right, does the government, to promote perversity and and sexual deviancy and punish those who do not agree. It's got no right in direct defiance of God, to legislate the murder of the unborn. We need to speak to our society and speak to the policies of our government for the sake of justice and righteousness. We need to confront rulers that are unfaithful to the mandate of Romans chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. That's not in question. The question is, the issue is, how do we do it? And I want you to hear me when I say this. If you can't check these blocks, then stay out of the public arena. I mean that if you cannot check these blocks, then you stay out of the public arena Just be quiet. Let somebody else handle it You must do so first of all respectfully 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 Not the way our world does it Not just throwing incendiary statements out there and then backing off and watching everything burn You do so respectfully You do it lawfully Do it lawfully. If we're to find a Christian, you know, group that's out there speaking against the government and they're smashing windows and throwing Molotov cocktails and everybody's wearing a mask and carrying a stick and beating on people, we ought to applaud when they get arrested. You do it lawfully. You do it peaceably. You do it peaceably. You're not arguing to win a fight. You're in the middle of this to win a mind. You do it wisely. Wisely. If it's all heat and no light, go get some light before you apply the heat. Intelligently. Okay? Wisely and intelligently. If you can't, if you can't make a good argument that your brothers and sisters in Christ can listen to and go, that's a good argument, then just don't do it. Don't go out there and be the guy that says, 15 things three of which are absolutely incorrect four of which are totally taken out of context and the other eight are just your personal opinion Ipsodixitism look that word up. It's a cool word. Anyway, don't do that You do it respectfully you do it lawfully you do it peaceably. you do it wisely you do it intentionally and you do it under the control of the holy spirit And from a proper heart motive Okay You do it under the control of the holy spirit and from a proper heart motive okay you do it in faith you do it with a christ-like manner and a christ-like conviction that righteousness proverbs thirteen 14, 13 i'm sorry fourteen thirty four. righteousness exalts a nation but sin is a reproach to any people righteousness exalts a nation sin is a reproach to any people you do that in that conviction you with me don't get me wrong it is right we should as christians act as the conscience of this country you know why because we alone know the truth capital t right right And we're charged by God to speak it. But above all, we'll move on to the next question in a second. But above all, chiefly and essentially, listen to me, we must be about proclaiming the gospel. We must be about proclaiming the gospel. Social involvement, social petitioning, whatever. trying to look for the right word that I'm looking for there. Social justice involvement is not a replacement for preaching the gospel. Well, now I went down and I picketed, you know, I mean, under the rights that we have of the Constitution, I went down and I held up a sign and I picketed down at the courthouse. So now I don't have to worry about actually speaking gospel truth to anybody. I've done my part. They haven't. They haven't. Above all else, we've got to proclaim the gospel. Evangelism, beloved, not public debate or petition or the promotion of just laws is God's primary means of dealing with the world's problems evangelism the root of problems in our society stems from sin in the human heart and the only answer to sin in the human heart the only solution is to see people brought into a right relationship with God through Christ by the proclamation of the gospel of Christ amen that's it But that doesn't mean that we should be silent about all those other issues But we're to be first the people of the gospel. And we're to be first preaching the salvation that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. The forgiveness of sins. The new, the eternal life that is in Christ through repentance and faith. Because here's the deal. If we succeed in creating or establishing a more just, less corrupt society, but we fail to preach the gospel and call sinners to repentance and see people saved, All of our efforts will ultimately be for naught because this kingdom is passing away. Second question always comes up. Is it ever right to disobey civil authorities? Is it ever right to, quote, break the law? Again, the answer to that, beloved, is yes. It is. As Christians, we should obey every single law of the land, whether we like it or not, except when obedience to civil law would force us to disobey the lord and break his word Now I want to be very clear about this. I want to be very very clear about this So there's no confusion. We're not to just disobey civil authorities because we don't like the party in charge Well, if that's you i'm with you, but that's not an excuse for civil disobedience I don't like the uniparty in charge we're not to disobey civil authorities because we think the law is stupid or for personal convenience or personal preference or for personal ambition or pride or to make a political statement and put it out there on TikTok. Hey, watch me. I'm breaking the law. I've seen some of that stuff. Not on TikTok, on people who post it on Instagram. And, or, and they record themselves breaking the law. Huh. You know, here's your sign. You're, you know, you're stupid here's your sign, right? That's not the idea here. Those kinds of motives, they're disreputable and they're dishonorable. God doesn't approve of those. Beloved, the reason for disobeying civil authorities must always be rooted in a word saturated. Listen to me now, write this down. In a word saturated, word saturated, spirit enlightened, spirit enlightened, God honoring, God-honoring conviction, all right? A word-saturated, spirit-enlightened, God-honoring conviction that to obey the civil authorities would be to sin against God. When the civil government commands us to do something that's unjust, immoral, or, you know, contrary to God's word, we must resist the government and obey God alone as our ultimate authority, okay? Listen to me. We need to do it boldly and not in hiding. We need to do it with a spirit of humility, And listen now, we've got to be willing to accept the consequences that may be the result. No whining about consequences. Even up to martyrdom. Whoa. Whoa, bro. Don't bring us down. I'm just saying. Even up to martyrdom. Now, most likely that won't happen, but it could because it happened to our forefathers in a lot of places. And in fact, we see that principle. You obey until you must disobey. We see that principle demonstrated throughout the scriptures. Let me just give you a few of them. Okay? And you can just write down the names and you can look at it later on your own. But, you know, when the Hebrew midwives, remember, were commanded by the Pharaoh to kill all the male babies, all the Hebrew male babies, remember? Kill them all. They were commanded by Pharaoh to kill every one of them. What did they do? Well, they refused. They refused. Because it was against the law of God. And the scripture says in Exodus chapter 1, starting verse 20, So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Moses' parents. Moses' parents were under Pharaoh's edict that all Hebrew sons were to be thrown into the Nile. But they refused to do so and they spared his life. And the writer of Hebrews says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Think about Jezebel. Remember when Elijah killed all the prophets of Jezebel up on Mount Carmel? She was not happy. So she decided she was going to kill all the prophets of God, right? Right? You remember what Obadiah did, don't you? Obadiah, if you don't know this story, you ought to read it. Obadiah hit a hundred of them and fed them and saved them in defiance of Queen Jezebel. Queen Esther broke the law and entered the king's presence in order to prevent God's people from being annihilated by Haman. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were commanded by Nebuchadnezzar to bow down and worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar that he had had set up in the plains of Dura, they defied him and and, and were unwilling to do so, but they were willing to face whatever consequences came to them as a result. And you remember what happened. They were cast into a fiery furnace, and yet the Lord preserved them in the flame. When Daniel heard, when Daniel heard, of the decree of the Medes, which commanded that no one was allowed to pray to anybody for the next 30 days except King uh, Darius, Daniel, Scripture says, went into his house where he had windows in his upper chamber toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He opened up his windows and he prayed to God anyway. He publicly defied civil law, got cast into the lion's den, and God preserved his life. In Acts chapter 4, the Sanhedrin, right? Ruling authority, Jewish authority. They commanded Peter and John to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? We read in Acts chapter 4, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach it all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, we hear you, but we're going to disobey. And they called back before the Sanhedrin, Acts chapter 5, because they obeyed God rather than the laws of men. We read that the Sanhedrin said to them, We strictly charged you, not just teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Now, we read those, and it's like, wow, this always turned out for good. Nope, not always. Eventually, Paul and every single one, all but one, Paul and all but one of the original 11 faithful apostles would lose their lives in defiance of attempts to silence the gospel. Paul would be beheaded. Peter would be crucified upside down. And that's to say nothing of the multitudes of those who perished as martyrs in the early church Because they refused to obey the government edict to burn incense to Caesar and confess him as Lord. Instead, many of them would take the pinch of incense, cast it to the ground and say, Jesus is Lord. It's to say nothing of the Legion of Reformers. They refused to obey civil orders not to preach the gospel, many of whom were burned at the stake or the multitude around the world who are being persecuted even now because they choose to obey God rather than men. When the civil authorities command us to disobey the the commands of God, we must refuse to comply and obey God alone and not do it in some cowardly shrinking way, but to act like men and to let all that we do be done in love, as Paul writes about our supreme love for Christ as Lord we got to be faithful regardless of the consequences. Look, I just, I'm just going to mention this. I want to mention this for just a moment. Please understand my heart in doing this. I am not mentioning this at all so, so, so that I exalt myself or, or for praise from you. That is not what this is about. But I do want to address this. That is exactly why, as a church, we continue to gather and to worship and to honor the Lord's Day. And we never shut down one Sunday during COVID. That's why. Some former members of this church accused the elders of being foolhardy and being short-sighted and inciting needless controversy. They accused me of political grandstanding and personal ambition. That had nothing to do with it. Nothing. That's not my heart at all. In fact, we were willing to accommodate everything that we could. We went along with the social distancing directives and the cleaning directives. And if you wanted to wear a mask, you could wear a mask, even though all studies show masks don't do a thing except make you sick. You could do whatever you wanted. You remember that, right? You remember how it was? We marked off spots. I was threatened with arrest on multiple occasions, right? And I was ready to go to jail if I had to be. Not that I wanted to. I didn't want to go to jail. Who wants to go to jail? Nobody, unless you got problems in your head. I didn't want to go to jail, but I was willing. And listen, that wasn't to make a public statement. (laughs) Hey, let me make a public statement about how prideful we are by going to jail. What are you, stupid? It had nothing to do with it. The bottom line was, and it is this, we will, we will gladly render to Caesar what is Caesar's. We will. We are glad to do it. We are glad to show ourselves as good citizens for the sake of Christ. We will gladly render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but we will never render to Caesar what is God's. And this church belongs to God, and our ultimate obedience belongs to God, and that includes faithful worship on the Lord's day until Jesus Christ himself comes back. That's it. Look, if the government were to outlaw the Bible, which... You know i'm not holding my breath on that one We're still going to own them and we're still going to read them and we're still going to give them out to people And if they were to outlaw the gathering of the church We're still going to gather to worship the king of kings And if they enact a the law that makes the preaching of the law and the gospel hate speech, guess what? We're going to still preach the law and the gospel And we desire to be obedient to the government. We desire to live a peaceful and a quiet life But when obedience to the government demands disobedience to god, we're going to obey god and we must If standing with Christ means that we stand against the state, then we're going to stand with Christ and be willing to receive whatever consequences come our way for obedience to Him. Again, that might mean punishment. It might mean imprisonment. It might be social ostracism. It could be you know, a number of things. It might mean martyrdom at some point in this country. We're not immune from that. And if that's the case, we'll face it like our brothers and sisters in the faith did in the past. Now let me make sure we understand something here. Paul and Peter, for instance, suffered greatly at the hands of the governing authorities. True? Yeah, Paul spent almost as much time in jail as he did out preaching. How's that for a ministry resume? They suffered greatly. They were ultimately martyred because the state hated their faithfulness to Christ. But listen to me. They did not foment rebellion, did they? Or call for Christians to revolt against the Roman Empire. The martyrdom of Christians for the sake of Christ and for the gospel is not a sufficient reason for rebellion. Our forefathers who died in Christ, they patiently endured, even unto death, standing firm in the Lord, knowing that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus said to his disciples regarding the last days, look, he said this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering up to the synagogues and the prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. But don't miss that. Your opportunity to witness to these kings and these governors will be because they will lay hands on you. He goes on to say you'll be delivered even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of them will be, of some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated for all by my name, for my name's sake, but not, listen now, not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. If faithfulness to Christ demands the sacrifice of our lives, then you know what? That's what we do. But then we come to the last question. And the question is, is there ever a time when revolution is right? Is revolution ever justified? And that's a question, listen, that always comes up. It always comes up when discussing Romans 13. And it's usually asked because of Nazi Germany and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his participation in a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Is revolution ever right? I'm just going to say this from the very beginning. There are several good and godly Christians, pastors, and theologians on either side of this issue because it is a profoundly serious and sober one. And it requires a great deal of scriptural study and reflection to come to a careful and a thorough conviction. So knee-jerking this is not an option. Oh, I just think this. You better have more than that. I can only speak to you regarding my own position. And again, this is my position. You might not agree with me, and I respect that. We may not have the same conviction regarding this. That doesn't mean that we can't fellowship with one another. It just means we don't have the same conviction on this. So this is my conviction. Again, it's my belief. This is not something you must believe. But this question gets answered and I need to answer it. When a government is corrupt, what I believe is that when a government is corrupt, a people must first attempt all possible means available to them to correct it. All of them. They must make proper redress to the government. They must publicly confront corruption and call for just and moral laws. They must be willing to suffer in order to make the truth known. If they, if they have the ballot box, if they have the opportunity for elections, they need to make means of the ballot box to elect less corrupt politicians. They must avail themselves of every possible peaceful means of reforming the government. I want to really emphasize that. But if that fails, and if the government becomes so immoral that the governing authorities now become a constant terror to the good and they approve and encourage what is evil, when the chief rulers become the chief lawbreakers, And the governing authorities break the law with impunity and become tyrannical in reality, not just in rhetoric. Okay? Not just in what they say, but they're actually becoming tyrannical. They've become tyrannical. And if they persistently, if it persistently threatens or kills human innocent life and denies fundamental human rights, if it enables and endorses lawlessness and brings upheaval to society, and in its profound wickedness is no longer, clearly no longer God's servant, but has become the servant of Satan, you know, perpetuating or perpetrating evil acts. Then I believe that government has violated its mandate from God in Romans chapter 13 verses three and four. And that revolution is just and that government can rightly flee, be changed and replaced with one that will conform to Romans 13, verses 1-7. through 7. That step must be carefully considered, and it cannot ever be simply a matter of preference or personal displeasure or discontentment with policies or laws that you find offensive or a matter of wanting someone else in office. Nor can it be an issue of discontentment with the governing authorities. It must be, listen to me, a matter of real An existential threat to human life and liberty of real and tangible and perversive evil. I agree with Sam Storms when he says, Revolution is justified only if the state has become so totally opposed to the purpose for which God ordained it. And if there is no other recourse available to prevent, and this is the key, to prevent massive evil. Massive evil. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it another way. He said, If a state, a king, or an emperor, a governor, a dictator, or anybody else becomes tyrannical, then this state is violating the law of its own being and constitution as laid down in Romans chapter 13 too. It's the business of the state and the government to repress evil and reward good. Its function is to maintain a quiet, a peaceable, orderly life. That is what it's called by God to do. So the state, having been instituted for the benefit of humanity, is to be the servant and not the master. The moment, therefore, that the state turns itself into a master and into a tyrant. It is disobeying the law of God that brought it into being and must itself be punished. And the form of the punishment that the punishment takes is that the government is thrown out and replaced by one that is prepared to abide by the teaching of Romans 13, through 7 Now listen, I want to emphasize this again. I believe that's the last resort. The very last resort. When every other option is extinguished, I cannot stress enough that it must be done soberly and seriously and thoroughly considering the cost and the possibility that the cure might be worse than the disease. It's got to be the last resort. Revolution must be to prevent massive evil and atrocity, and it must be in the best interest of the society as a whole, and it must be done according to the principles of just war. That is, only the principles and no secondaries. Again, this is a difficult one. When people ask me, was Bonhoeffer right to in, to engage in a plot to kill Hitler and put an end to the massive evil and the state-sponsored genocide that was being carried out by Nazi Germany under his rule to the tune of not just, you know, people will say, well, it's just 6 million. No, no, it was more like 11 million people in the world because they were Jews or because they were Aryan or because they didn't meet with Hitler's evaluation of what was a valuable person sounds familiar doesn't it do i think bonhoeffer was right i do again you may not agree with me you might think that that's just a holdover from my old navy days but i assure you it's not There was never a more conscientious man regarding what his actions would mean for christ and for the name of christ and for the glory of christ in germany at that time and he prayed earnestly debated this for a long time before he gave himself to do it it's a difficult question but it's one that needs to be considered and answered according to biblically informed consciences and we may come to a different conclusion if we do we do and that's fine but paul gives us a lot to think about here this is not a throwaway text he gives us a lot to think about as regards our relationship between you know the christian and the state God's, yes, establish these authorities for our good and for the good of society. And we need to take our place under its proper authority. And we must pray for our leaders and, you know, all that are in authority. We need to seek obedience to the government as God's servant as much as we can. But again, when obedience to the government demands disobedience to God, we've got to obey God. Earthly kingdoms are passing away. But there's only one kingdom that's eternal, right? There's only one that ultimately matters above all others. And that's the kingdom of our Lord, isn't it? Isn't it? Earthly kingdoms are passing away. One kingdom is of eternal, and it holds our, must hold our supreme allegiance. Beloved, we've got to remember there's only one kingdom that's eternal, that's everlasting, that is truly just, that is truly good, that is truly righteous, that is filled with peace and love and joy and satisfaction, and that kingdom's the kingdom of God. That kingdom is the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who rules His people in righteousness and love. Our first, our supreme, our greatest allegiance is to the Lord and we can never compromise that. In our day, beloved, listen, there is no doubt that supreme obedience to Christ is going to bring us into growing conflict with the governing authorities in our society and in the world. So be it. We're not seeking that conflict. We're not looking, you know, we're not going out there looking for it. It's going to come. But we must have settled in our hearts that our government is not God. Only God is God. Only God is God. We're citizens of two kingdoms right now. But you know what? Praise God. That's not going to be so forever. The kings of this earth are passing away. The consummation of the kingdom of God is coming, and John describes its beauty perfectly. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every or each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healings of the nations. And no longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They need no light or lamp or sun. For the Lord will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Beloved. Beloved. Let us live in this earthly kingdom in a way that brings honor to the Lord and that demonstrates our supreme allegiance to our eternal King. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we hear these words and they're strong words and they're serious words and and yet, Lord, we can't just let them go in one ear and out the other. We can't imagine that they're not of significance because they are. And so I pray, Lord God, that you will help us to, to approach these words in the way that we ought to, to hear this truth and father god to respond to it in a way that is right and proper in your eyes and in the questions that are a matter of conscience that lord god you would help us to come to a place where we are convinced by scripture and our conscience is clear regarding the positions that we hold but only in those that are a matter of conscience not in matters of truth so lord i pray help us to respond to this text in the way that we should and i pray this in jesus name Amen.